Mark 6.45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. When evening had come, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. So evening has come. Jesus immediately sends the disciples by boat back toward Bethsaida. They actually end up in the land of Gennesaret, the next part of this chapter, which is past Capernaum to the west. So Jesus sends the satiated crowd away. They've eaten of those loaves and fishes and they're satisfied. But they don't go far. They will be back tomorrow because they will be hungry again, as we're told in John 6. And Jesus tries to speak to them of spiritual things, but they are offended. As in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, where it says, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. So these men, their God was their belly. They live by the desires of the flesh only, the bodily appetites, on a purely animal level. We talked about them you know, following Jesus, but they were really followers of loaves and fishes, not followers of Jesus. So Jesus sends them away and then he goes up in the mountain to pray. Now, Jesus often spent time alone in prayer to the Father. Uh, I said that Jesus is in continual communication with the Father and that was the case. He had unbroken fellowship with him. But he also had the need and took the time to get alone with the Father in prayer. We're not given the content of many of these prayer times. He was no doubt seeking the will of the Father just as he teaches us to do. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, Jesus teaches us, he says, When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. It speaks, of course, to the motive of the heart. It speaks of closeted prayer. You know, the King James Version says, go into your closet. There are people who actually have closets that they, you know, set up because of that, and they'll go in and and pray. We don't have enough closet space, you know. (laughs) But he's talking about private prayer. It's not a disallowance of public prayer. Jesus prayed publicly, but it's a check upon the motive of the heart. Unless you're shouting in your private prayer for the neighbors to hear, the problem of motive is solved. God's the only one who is aware of your prayer. 
Or you could work it into a conversation somewhere. You know, like, you know, as I was praying this morning in my quiet time, I couldn't believe that hours had gone by. You know, it seemed like only moments. (laughs) Jesus was navigating this life in the Spirit as a man in subjection to the Father. He was being tested and passing the test that Adam failed and then paying the price to redeem us from the bondage to sin and death. With private prayer, there's also the aspect of spending time in the presence of the Father apart from the distractions of everyday life. There's a deeper fellowship, a sweet communion with God. We read back in Mark chapter 1 how Jesus... um, when it, at the beginning of his ministry, it, it says in verse 35, In the morning, having risen, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. So he got up early in the morning and went out and prayed. This was after an intense time of ministry, healing, casting out of demons that lasted well into the evening. And he departs to pray and then he moves out into a wider ministry. Here in chapter 6 of Mark, he goes away to pray after the feeding of the 5,000 plus. It is John again who tells us that Jesus has realized something about the crowd. It's found in John 6 verses 14 and 15. After this feeding, it says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Of course, they couldn't make him do anything that he did not desire to do. That was not in their capability. Uh, But he could have set up the kingdom right then. These guys would have taken him in, made him king. Um, One pastor refers to them seeing him as the bread king. That was their motivation. You know, this is going to be free food for a lifetime. But it wasn't the right time for the kingdom to come. It was not the time the Father had set. I'm sure at least some of his prayer was about the crowd, for he knew the fickle nature of their admiration. Their desire to make him king was for their own self-interest, not his. And there was in their desire a temptation for Jesus to take a shortcut in the plan, to avoid the cross. Satan tempted him with the same in the wilderness after he was baptized and went into the wilderness. Look at all these kingdoms. Bow down before me and I'll give them to you. Satan tempted him with the same in the wilderness. Later, Peter's declaration of faith is followed by a temptation to avoid the cross as well. You know, when Jesus begins to tell them after Jesus or Peter's confession of faith, Jesus begins to tell them about going to Jerusalem and being crucified, buried, raising the third day. And Peter comes to him and says, oh, Lord, this will never happen to you. And then, he's, of course, he gets rebuked, you know, after being praised and lifted way up on high, brought back down. But it was for the purpose of the cross that Jesus came into the world. And we know that Satan tempted him in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. And then it says he, he went away from him for waiting for an opportune time. But he continued to tempt Jesus through his life, through his ministry and 
Uh, Hebrews tells us he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus later tells this crowd that he fed the same thing he told Peter, but not in the same words. Uh, In Matthew chapter 16, this is where this uh, rebuke of Peter is found. It says from that time, it's verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside. He didn't want to rebuke him openly. You know, you don't want to do that with the master. Takes him aside to re- and began to rebuke him, <laughs> saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen. You got this all wrong, you know. You need to have more faith, more confidence in God. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So the things of God was this plan, this cross. Uh, After the cleansing of the leper, uh, Jesus goes and prays. says, However, this is Luke chapter 5, verse 15 and 16. However, the report went out about him concerning, went around concerning him all the more. Excuse me, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of his infirmities after he cleansed this leper of his uh, disease. And it says, so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. This was, uh, it can be translated, he was continually withdrawing into the wilderness to pray. This was uh, an essential part of Jesus' life in relationship to the Father. And of course, if he needed it, then... We need it that much more. A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar, says, The more the crowds came as a result of the leper's story, the more Jesus turned away from them to the desert regions and prayed with the Father. It is a picture of Jesus drawn with vivid power. The wild enthusiasm of the crowds was running ahead of their comprehension of Christ and his mission and his message. So there's a real danger here. And there's a need for guidance and confirmation of the Father's timing and will. We know on another occasion, Luke 6:12, that Jesus prayed all night in prayer. He spent all night in prayer before he chose the twelve. So there are certain benefits of private prayer. Among those benefits are an acknowledgement of God, that his, our need for him and his direction, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. So there's this acknowledgement of God in in private prayer. Uh, There's prayer for His kingdom and will to be done. We know that model prayer that Jesus gave us. It's in Matthew 6, 9 through 15. The Our Father, as we know it. Uh, Part of that prayer is for His kingdom and His will to be done. There's the aspect of closer communion with God, having devotions before Him. There's seeking the will of God, guidance for ourselves and others. There's intercession on behalf of others, including kings and rulers. And then there's the the aspect of letting our needs be known to the Lord. Uh, He doesn't say let our wants be known to Him, but it's okay to let Him know what your requests and your desires are. Uh, But... Definitely our needs he is willing to fulfill. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds 
through Christ Jesus. So this peace of God, one of the benefits of spending time with God in prayer. Uh, confession and forgiveness of sin and trespasses, part of that time spent with Him. And then the ability to deal with temptations are also part of that. So we're told that evening has come. This is sometime between 6 and 9 p.m. They were, it was getting late in the day when he was uh, feeding the 5,000 and the women and children. And uh, that would have been between the time spoken of there was the time frame between 3 and 6 p.m. So somewhere in that time frame, they're doing that because it's getting late in the day. Between 6 and 9, evening comes. And his disciples are rowing into the wind. They're out in the middle of the sea. That is, they're not near the shore. Uh, the sea was about seven miles wide at this point where they would be. And it tells us, uh, I think John tells us how far they had rowed. So they're right about in the middle, three and a half, four miles into the middle of the sea. Jesus is praying on the mountain where it looks down upon the Sea of Galilee. And uh, he can see them. The fourth watch of the night, we're told, he comes to them walking on the sea. That's between 3 and 6 a.m. They left the evening before, so they've been rowing for quite a long time into the wind. And they've been straining at the oars. The Greek word is used for tortured. <laughs> so they are really laboring. And, you know, at the oars against the wind for hours. I mean, I would have given up. I would have said, this is impossible. Um, you know, sometimes some of us go out biking and sometimes you run into a strong headwind when you're biking and it would be similar to what they're experiencing here. And, I mean, you get buffeted with these wind gusts and you're pedaling hard and you're, you're barely moving, you know. I turn around and go with the wind. You know? <laughs> Much better. Whatever the disciples' failings, they persevere even while struggling tremendously to obey Jesus' command to precede Him to the other side. They're trying to be obedient. This is what He's told them to do. See, Spurgeon says, The Christian man may make little or no headway, and yet it may be no fault of his, for the wind is contrary. Our good Lord will take the will for the deed and reckon our progress not by our apparent advance, but by the hearty intent with which we tug the oars. So Jesus sees them straining at rowing, a torturous effort. They may think Jesus is unaware of what's going on with them, but he sees even when they, even when we think he's not watching or paying attention. We might give the Lord a command, pay attention, Lord. Don't you see what's going on here? So Jesus comes walking on the sea, not on the seashore, as liberal theologians speculate, but on the surface of the water. In this, Jesus' deity is once again confirmed to us. Job chapter 9 and verse 8, uh, speaking of these creative acts of the Lord in this chapter of Job, when he comes to verse 8, he, has said, he says, He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Prophecy of the one who is coming. His deity confirmed. Now, when we read that in Job, we might read this thinking nice poetic language. You know, some good plaque material. 
if not for Jesus doing this quite literally. Jesus is able to do anything that needs to be done to fulfill the Father's will and to fulfill the Father's will toward you. There are no obstacles that can prevent Jesus from doing anything He is led by the Father to do. This includes those things He desires to do on your behalf or things He desires you to do, Him to do through you. We know the Lord desires to use willing vessels. And so we see here the ability of Jesus over, you know, we saw it in the feeding of the 5,000. We've seen it in healings, casting out demons, His mastery over all creation. And here He does so walking upon the sea. There are certain, you know, we've discovered certain insects that can walk on water. I don't think Jesus was using any of these sprout insect legs, you know. Um, and the wind is, is blowing like crazy. I don't think Jesus is, you know, walking up a wave and down a wave. I think it's clear where he is. He's just got this path where he's going. And, you know, I need to get here. Father wants me to go there. He wants me to go in this uh, manner. And so, you know, he takes off. He's going out to meet his disciples. So, uh, a few scriptures here just. And what Jesus is able to do, the ability of Jesus. Um, Acts twenty thirty two. Um, this is the passage we read last week, where Paul called the elders, Ephesian elders, together and was talking to them, and he warned them about wolves and false shepherds. And then he comes to verse thirty two, where he says he's able to accomplish this, and he's been talking about building you up and sanctifying you. It says, let me read the verse now. Brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So he's able to accomplish this building up and sanctifying by the word of his grace and your trust in that word. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, we're told about the ability of Jesus. It says, for indeed he does not give aid to angels, did I say verse 16? I did not, he does not give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So his experiences, he's able to not only relate, but also to help with us. Are you tempted? He's your aid, not your tormentor. Some temptations may be sudden, you know, outbursts of anger. You can be tempted and all of a sudden, pow, you know. Other temptations can be seething, tugging at you, not wanting to let go for a period of time. Difficult to deal with. Jesus is your aid in those times of temptation. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 and 25 says, He, because He continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. His work continues. He's able to save beyond doubt, since He continues His work of redemption and sanctification even to this day. Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27 
says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone, wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. This doxology at the end of Romans. He's able to establish you according to my gospel. To establish is to make stable, to place firmly, to set fast, to fix, to strengthen, to make firm, to render constant. I need that. Confirm To confirm one's mind. And when you are established, 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. When you're established, you are immovable in the Lord. Now, the context of what he's saying here in 1 Corinthians 15 is he's It's that passage about death being swallowed up in victory. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Be immovable. Your work is not in vain. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Exceedingly, abundantly, above. Just think about that language. All that we can ask. Oh, and all we can think. You can't think of anything that he's not able to do exceedingly above what you can think. Jude chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Again, a doxology at the end of a letter. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. No stumbling. He's able to present you faultless. And then 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. Paul writing to Timothy when he's about to face the executioner. It says, For this I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. He's able to keep. I'm not able to keep. He's able to keep. But Paul says, uh, for this reason I suffer these things. Wait. Suffer? How, you, how does that fit in with you know God being able to do that? You're, Paul, you're saying suffering? Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Uh, Paul writes and says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. He's able to subdue all things to Himself. He's the only true superman. 
We have our fictional heroes. It might be Superman, the Marvel Avengers, perhaps. Uh, we refer to them as idols, matinee idols, it used to be the term. We have men and women who are believers. Some extol Luther or Calvin, Augustine or Wesley, Spurgeon or Tozer. And we have the apostles and other humans that we can be encouraged by and emulate. But we also have a relationship and access to the only true superman. He is also God in human flesh. You can't get any more super than that. And we're told that since God has given us His own dear Son, He will also with Him give us all things. Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, He delivered Him up for us all. How shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Many times we realize God's given His Son. What a great gift that is. A gift of salvation. And yet, we think that He's not going to give us other things or help us in in other ways. Many times He's already given us the greatest gift. He's not going to withhold anything else that uh, is His will and that we need. He desires to do so much more for us than we can believe or perhaps than we are willing to believe. We know our shortcomings and it seems the longer we seek to follow the Lord, the more we are aware of the distance to being perfectly like Him, which is the goal He has determined to accomplish for each of us who believe. We feel our unworthiness, but His work is based on His grace and not our worthiness. And He has no shortcomings. It's not about us. It's about Him. And there's no limit to His power or His resources. He is able. What's the task? What is the need? It matters not. He is able. And His ability is our ability. Whatever He's able to do, we are also able to do in Him and according to His will. Can you save anyone to the uttermost? No. (laughs) But you can be an instrument in His hand bringing the gospel of salvation to those who are lost. Can you subdue all things to yourself? No. Ha ha. But he within his will, by faith in him, within his will, by faith in him, you can subdue whatever would obstruct the accomplishment of his will in or through you. Our ability is in him. It's not apart from him. It remains his ability, not our ability. But we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. And his command is ours to obey, even as the apostles rowing contrary to the wind all night long. I have a postscript. If the wind is against you, that doesn't mean that the Lord is against you. They were in God's will. They were in you know, the will of Jesus. He commanded them, get in the boat, go over there. This is what they were doing. But the wind was contrary. The example of his ability being ours is Peter in this same context, in this uh, windstorm upon the sea. Mark doesn't tell us about it being Peter's account. Uh, you know, Mark and Peter being companions. Peter doesn't want written in here about his walking on the water. We get the rebuke, but we don't get the, the uh, miracle. So Mark doesn't tell us, but Matthew in chapter 14, he tells us that when Jesus came to them walking on the water, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. 
And Jesus says to him, come. I think somebody will say, if it's you, bid me to come to you on the water. It's a command. He wants Jesus to command him to come on the water because you can obey impossible commands if they're commands of Jesus. He's going to be the one fulfilling that. And Jesus says to him, come. So commands to do the impossible can be done by faith in Jesus following his command. We read that before we read before that if God commands the impossible, it's because He is the one who will be doing the work. It's not us who will be doing that work. It remains impossible for us. And we know from our experience there are those who seek to initiate signs of the miraculous, sometimes demanding that God act. But Jesus said these signs shall follow them, not they shall produce these signs. We wait upon the Lord for Him to lead, to initiate, and to do what He desires to do. Some who seek to do signs and wonders do so in sincerity. Their desire is that God be glorified. But there are others who are frauds, seeking to fleece the sheep and use their ill-gotten gains for personal affluence and pleasure. So Jesus is able to do all things that pertain to His will for you. Now, as to Paul's comment about suffering because he was appointed as a preacher, apostle, and teacher of the Gentiles, at times the Lord placed a hedge of protection around his people, the people who believed in him and did what was right in his sight. Uh, The prime example given is Job, Job uh, chapter 1. We know that the sons of God come before God, and among them is Satan, the adversary. And in verse 8, it says, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. He's got a lot of good reasons for obeying the Lord. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And we know the rest of the story, that it only uh, increases, becomes worse from there after his family and possessions are destroyed. You know, then you know, Satan goes back and says, Well, yeah, but you didn't let me touch him. You let me touch him, and he's going to collapse he's going to fail and so then his body you know is but in the beginning god has this hedge around job he's protecting him from the enemy the lord has placed a certain amount of protection around us all whether we're believers or not otherwise satan would quickly wipe out all of humanity no hatred exceeds the hatred that the devil has for mankind when God chose Abram to be the beginning of the nation through whom he would bless the world with the Messiah, protection was part of the agreement. In Galatians, or I'm sorry, Genesis 5, back up, Genesis 15, verse 1, says, After these things, this is after the battle of the kings, he rescued Lot and his possessions. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in, in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward and we know that blessing that he promised 
God placed hedges of protection around Israel as long as they were faithful to his covenant and really long afterward in his long suffering and mercy toward them. His purpose in bringing forth the Messiah through them entailed a protection of their existence as a people. It continues today. He's further promised them a future kingdom that will not end. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah talks about this hedge that was planted. It's the picture of Israel as a vineyard. In uh, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, he says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I've not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. So the Lord was saying he's going to remove the hedge around Israel because of their uh, disobedience to the covenant he had made with them. The day came when the judgment on Israel because of the breaking of this covenant could no longer be withheld. But this was under the Mosaic covenant. We are under the new covenant. Israel, there was a covenant with Israel nationally. The new covenant is with you personally. It's really with Jesus, but anybody that's within him. So there's not so much emphasis upon protection under the new covenant. Instead, we are to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. It's a little bit different. God has not promised us protection per se. He has promised us presence, companionship, and fellowship. His presence continually with us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul referenced his suffering uh, because he was appointed a preacher, apostle, and teacher of the Gentiles. Indeed, suffering for the sake of Christ is every Christian's promise. We're told that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Uh, Jesus said, In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. The same word that's used here that he speaks when he comes near the boat. Um, I have overcome the world. So we trust in Him. We follow Him. And we experience what He experienced. As Jesus was in the world, so we are in the world if we follow Him, if we're obedient to Him. He doesn't tell us, like Romans 8, verses 35 through 39, says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Surely the Lord wouldn't let any of those things come. He says, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Primarily speaking of himself and the other apostles, but anyone who seeks to follow Jesus. He says, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus 
our Lord. So none of these things, he says, shall separate us from his love. He doesn't say none of these things shall touch us. None of these things shall occur in our experience or in our life. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, he uh, exhorts them to let their conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Uh, We know man can do many things to us. But what do they amount to if the Lord is our helper? Well, God has a greater purpose in mind for us under this new covenant. Back in Proverbs 17.3, we're told the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. He tested the hearts then. The testing of the hearts is ramped up in the new covenant. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, and he's talking about that inheritance we have kept by the power of God, a living hope. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have this great inheritance reserved in heaven for us. But in the meantime, we may experience suffering and trial. 1 Peter chapter 4.12, he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Well, these guys out in the middle of the sea are in a, in a trial. But he's making something of us that we do not yet see. And he tells us about this. This is his plan. This is something he's predestined. He's predetermined for those who believe in Jesus. Romans 8.29 Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. This is the end stage, the end goal for those that believe in Jesus. And he's he's assured us that it will be there. In the meantime, 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So as we uh, gaze into His Word, we're being transformed. Uh, we see the mirror of the Word, James chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. So we look into His Word. The Lord uses His Word by His Spirit to do the work in us that He desires to do. And sometimes it seems like a long, slow process. You know, that's why we say, come quickly, Jesus, because at that point, we'll be made like him. And that's in First John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Behold, what manner of love, what kind of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God, totally unworthy. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. No longer through a mirror or glass darkly. We see Him as He is and we're transformed, as Philippians 3 said, into His image. 
Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So uh, Jesus comes to them walking on the water. We're told he would have passed them by. And well, I've got some place to be. Hi, guys. Yeah. Is he checking on them just to make sure they're okay? Checking to see who's steadfast and who's getting panicky? You know, filling out the report cards? He doesn't want to go as slow as they're going because he can, you know, the wind has no uh, more hindrance on him than the sea does. So he's, you know, but uh, some have pointed out the term can also mean that he meant to come alongside them. So he's approaching the boat to come alongside where they are. And when they see him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. They first believed it was a spirit. The word phantasma. Not someone with a body. And they cried out and freaked out. Literally, this word is a shriek of terror or a scream. (laughs) Blood-curdling scream. These guys are frightened silly. I get frightened by much less. (laughs) For they saw him and were troubled. And immediately he speaks to them and says, Be of good cheer, it's I, do not be afraid. They're troubled, they're disturbed, they're distraught, they're panicking. And immediately he says to them, Don't be afraid. Literally, it's a command. Stop being afraid. Oh, okay. You want me to roll across the the sea? I'll try to do that. Now you're commanding me to not be afraid, and I'm totally afraid. Okay. And even more, he says to them, Be of good cheer. Which, you know, that I think that's probably the King James influence of the old English or something because they're always, you know, saying to one another, be of good cheer. It literally is take courage. You know, be courageous, guys. You don't have to be afraid. And then he gives them assurance by saying, it's I. Or what he literally says is I am. It's translated I am in many other places in the New Testament, ego I me. So he's identifying himself to them. And so they have reason enough to be encouraged. And they let him get in the boat. And I'm sure they couldn't stop him anyway. So he gets up into the boat with him. The wind ceases. And they're greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure. And they marveled. Another mastery over creation that blows their minds. But they're not getting all this. They're not retaining all this that they're experiencing says in the uh, verse 52, they had not understood about the lows because their heart was hard. And this is why they're still marveling. You know, this could have been like business as usual. Oh, okay. Yeah, I see that this is who Jesus is. He does this thing. But uh, says their heart was hardened because they didn't they didn't catch on to what was going on. Their, their attitudes in the feeding of the multitude, their likely resentment of the crowd, is implied by the reference to the hardening of their heart. It's interesting they have a singular heart. Their heart was hardened. They have a collective heart. They're all of one heart, but it's a hardened heart. They need to be of one heart uh, with a soft heart, not a hard heart. So they were not open to considering the reality and the wonder of what had taken place with the bread and the fish. And now a subsequent amazing miracle Yet later, after Jesus reproduces the miracle of the loaves, they're still not quite understanding. 
And when they get into a boat and Jesus tells them, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes. And they're like, oh, we forgot to bring bread. You know. We too can be resistant to the truths that we hear and learn. We can acknowledge them with our minds, but somehow they still may not have the impact upon our living that they should have. There's a song lyric by Mark Hurd. He says, I wish that the song is the ways of men. It's a good song. I wish that the ways of men were the same as the ways of God. How is it so our thick little hearts leave the narrow path for the broad? Leave the narrow path for the broad. When McDonald says, lack of faith produced hardness of heart and dullness of spiritual perception. In Matthew's account of this, they do end up uh, calling him the Son of God. They fall down before him. They worship him. But this amazement somehow wears off, even as it may for us when the Lord does something amazing in our lives. But we wonder where he is not much later in the next trial. We're not so much different than these apostles. We love, you know, seeing the foibles of the apostles at times. And, uh, you know, we can make jokes about them and stuff, but I would be much worse in the situations that they were in than any of them were. Verse 53 then, we'll just quickly finish the chapter. When they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. Ran through the whole surrounding region and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment and the tassel. And as many as touched him were made well. So they come across the sea. Uh, in John's account, Jesus gets in the boat, and immediately the boat is at the shore. You know, just a, another additional miracle. So they come to Gennesaret, that's on the west side of the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And they get out of the boat and the people recognize him. I mean, he just left them. They've crossed over in boats later. He has the inescapable crowds. Jesus continues to minister to them as a shepherd does his sheep. And he heals all who are in need. Interesting, Jesus didn't turn people away. And then... Mark sums up, gives another summary of the many things he did in villages, cities, country, everywhere he went, marketplaces. There were people who were brought to him begging that he just might touch the hem of his garment. And as many as he touched, as many as touched him were made well. This story of the uh, woman with the flow of blood who had come up behind him and said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And she was healed. Apparently, that got broadcast far and wide because these people are saying, all right, all you have to do is touch the hem of his garment, touch the tassel, and you'll get healed. So, you know, they're they're carrying this out. I don't think they just, everybody thought of this on their own. <laughs> it was a report that went forth and uh, that was seen and then carried out. <clears throat> 